We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Wednesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a great Wednesday show for you. Former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray hops, uh, stops, stops by the podcast. We're wondering, well, why are we talking about Ole Miss basketball still? I wanted to have him on to talk a little bit of the NCAA tournament and then some of the challenges that uh, Ole Miss is already facing and what will be a uh, program-defining offseason in a lot of ways. Uh, for Kermit Davis, he loses two assistants, Levi Watkins to NC State, Ronnie Hamilton to LSU, and then uh, obviously a good bit of roster turnover is coming as well as uh, hopefully keeping a couple of pieces intact. So I thought Bracken did a good job outlining a lot of the uh, challenges Ole Miss is facing on a lot of different fronts as well as provide some color um, to kind of what happens behind the scenes in a college basketball offseason. Not necessarily what's happening behind the scenes this offseason, clearly, because he's not still in it, but just how some of these things work and just how hard it is to solve some of the problems that Kermit Davis is going to have to solve, or maybe challenges overcomes a better way to put it. So I thought it was an interesting conversation, kind of wrapping up the college hoop season as a whole. And what the Rebels face. Before we get to Bracken, though, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Hopefully, you cashed in on the year with Skybox. We'll have some stats later in the week on how they did for college basketball season. March Madness may be over, but they've got the MLB package coming up in May. They will have an NBA package. For the playoffs, NASCAR is in full effect. Be sure to check out that package. But uh, whatever you're wagering on right now, Skybox is going to have some sort of picks bundle or picks package that's going to fit your price range, whether that's month-long, season-long. You can go all sports, sports-centric, whatever the case may be. They're going to have something for you. You need to partner with Skybox. You don't want to be the guy who's dreading the man texting him on some night, wondering if they could square up. You want to be texting the bookie asking where your supplementary income is coming from. Skybox is going to do that more consistently than your own knowledge. They are the professionals. They do it based on data, not uh, some lean 15 minutes before tip-off. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Go pick out a package. Go buy some merch. Whatever you buy, use the promo code RIPPY, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. 
It's grilling season. The weather's warmer. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger there. Go stop by. If you're a Rippy Ride subscriber, that's rippyrides.substack.com. You type in your email, you get a free newsletter from me a couple times a week, as well as discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Weather's getting warmer. Go in there and find all your own favorites. Greg's going to help you throw something you enjoy on the grill. He wants to make your grilling experience great. That's why they've been in business for almost two decades. Check him out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. I miss LB's more and more every time I go back, uh, to be honest. Check them out. All right, here is Bracken Ray on the challenges Ole Miss basketball is facing on a number of fronts. All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer, Rippy Wright's Hoops correspondent, Bracken Ray here, about 24 hours or so removed from the national championship game, an all-time national championship game, and really a fantastic NCAA tournament. Figured we'd chop it up a bit. We already did kind of the Ole Miss podcast, Ole Miss obituary to the 2021-2022 season podcast. But as it kind of happens in college basketball, like, you know, if your team's not in the dance, you get about a two-week head start on some off-season attrition. So we'll hit that, probably some NCAA tournament stuff. What's up, my man? Man, not a whole lot. What about yourself? Oh, nothing. Just uh, as we record this, trying to keep up with this uh, midweek baseball game as best I can. We can't. Somehow they're still in the day and age of 2022. You can have a ranked college baseball game, not be on a stream. I get it's a ballpark issue, but uh, can you just stop playing games at a ballpark that doesn't allow streaming? What the hell? I was listening to DK uh, on the radio until he started recording, but I I was kind of miffed by that one. I was like, wait, what do you mean this isn't on TV? Yeah, it's wild that, um, you know, an in-state game between two ranked teams, um, you know, in a a big alumni base is not – it's not on TV because I know I'd be watching if it was. And I'm just going to throw this one out there for the listeners because I was reading on the way home from the office stuck in traffic about how like it's a Trustmark Park thing and they don't allow streaming. If someone out there wants to shoot me a DM and explain it to me like I'm four, I guarantee you I've watched a streamed game at Trustmark Park before. I know I've watched a Governor's Cup there. Maybe it's because it was on SEC Network and I just streamed it because that's how I have the – like I don't have traditional cable. But if someone wants to explain that one to me, I I was just at a complete loss for that. I was like, I know I've streamed one at at Trustmark Park before. So, um, before we uh, dive in too deep to uh, Ole Miss baseball and the, I think, three errors they've made already, let's talk some hoops. Um, All-time NCAA tournament. What did you think? I thought this was one of the more entertaining NCAA tournaments that I could remember. I I enjoyed every second of it. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. And and really, if you think about it, it kind of started with the conference tournaments, too. Um, There were some really good conference tournament games, conference tournament championships, you know, a few buzzer beaters as well. So, you know, March lived up to its hype this year. Um, Definitely did not see Carolina, you know, making it all the way. Um, We looked back probably six weeks ago, and we didn't know if they were – going to make the tournament or not but um they got hot at the right time which is why March is so fun and last night uh last night's game was an all-timer as well I mean that was pretty high level basketball what do you what do you where do you fall on the whole like I like the Cinderella story I think it's I kind of roll my eyes sometimes when people are like well you actually want the blue bloods there at the end and I get from like a ratings perspective there's value in that but I kind of like the mixture. Like, I thought the St. Peter's thing was cool. Also thought it was awesome that we had Villanova, Kansas, Carolina, and Duke. Obviously, the biggest Carolina-Duke game 
you know, maybe ever um, in oh. the Final Four. But, like, if the Final Four had been, I don't know, like a Miami or Houston had snuck in there, I feel like I would have enjoyed it just as much. Now, granted, Carolina Duke could have been an exception. But, like, where do you fall on that whole theory? Because I don't really care because, in my opinion, the games at the end of the year in the Elite Eight and the Final Four are almost always awesome anyway. Yeah, I think that if um, if Houston had made it to the Final Four this year, that would have been really, really cool. I, I had them, I think, in at least the Elite Eight. Um, but I think one of the reasons people make that take is because a team like a St. Peter's, you you get afraid that they may lose that magic, you know, at some point. And then what happens if it turns into a 25 or 30 point game in the Elite Eight or in the Final Four? I think that's kind of where that take comes from. But we remember, you know, the Butlers and VCUs of the world. Like, we remember those teams for that. Um, VCU kind of made its name as a program for those runs as well. So I think it's pretty cool to see, um, you know, in addition to having some blue bloods there. I agree. Was there anything that shocked you? Uh, we haven't talked since the NCAA tournament happened, and obviously there was ton, you know, a couple upsets, and there's a ton of ways you could go with it. Um, I'll just pigeonhole into this one. What the hell with Kentucky? Where, where do you see Cal from here? That was one of the most. That was probably the most shocking uh, element of it to me. He probably is not getting much sympathy from uh, KSR radio up there that St. Peter's made the Elite Eight. I'm just gonna guess. Yeah, um, that was shocking to me. I had them going super far. Um, and the reason why is because of Oscar uh, Toshibwe. I mean, the dude, the dude gets rebounds like, like nobody's business. Um, and, you know, they, they had a nice mixture this year of transfers and kind of some high-level high school guys too. But, you know, that's the crazy thing about March. And for, for Cal, you know, I, a lot of people were like, you know, hot seat type stuff. I mean – I don't, I don't know. I think that's a little, that's a little premature, but he had a good team this year and St. Peter's, I think that was my one surprise is how far they went. And then, I mean, look, Carolina going as far as they do. We kind of talked about Carolina in a way like they were a Cinderella because, um, you know, because of the past couple of years with them in the end, they're a blue blood, but we kind of viewed them in the light because of their regular season as, as a Cinderella. And, you know, I, I didn't um, think that Hubert did a, really good job with them the first couple months of the season. Um, but, man, they turned it on in March, and uh, Baycock, he, he's a player. Yeah, he is, and that was an incredible run from them either because I kind of had them as an afterthought. Like, it, you know, they how many times did they get beat by 20-something in conference play, and then it all just kind of put, put together in March, which was pretty wild to see. Um, I imagine a bunch of quite a few Ole Miss people probably remember Brady Manick from 2019 Oklahoma. What was the other kid they had? Was it Christian Doolittle at Oklahoma that kind of tore them up in that 2019 NCAA tournament? Is that right? That sounds right. That game was a little bit of a yawner. Yes, that game was over from uh, really about the opening jump. But uh, I could see now how Dom and Bruce maybe didn't necessarily match up with Brady Manick and that Doolittle kid very well. Um, but anyway, neither here nor there. I'm trying to think of a couple other things that just stuck out throughout the course of the tournament. Um, the Coach K thing, I was never really on huge on the I hate Coach K thing. I think I think it's funny how Coach K in like the eight, late 80s, early 90s, really even 2000s, pre-social media is probably the best way to put it, kind of became like this revered figure in college basketball in terms of like could do no wrong. 
And then kind of once we got a little more access into things and, you know, more media outlets and different ways to consume content, it was actually like, okay, this guy's not a bad guy, but he's kind of full of shit. And like, no one's really said anything. And it became this whole like hate train and I get it's Duke or whatever, but I thought the run was cool. I honest to God, I thought it would have been cool if they'd have won the whole thing. I wasn't a K hater. Where did you fall on that whole storyline? I didn't think he did a good job with that team. I'll add that, but I didn't want to see them lose necessarily like most people did. Yeah, the blue blood that I actually followed growing up was Duke outside of Ole Miss. I went to basketball camp and stuff like that growing up. So, you know, I was rooting for that. I think, um, you know, what's what was really interesting to me is I'm very pro pay players, pro transfers, but the amount of um, like the amount I've paid attention to Duke since they've gone heavy one on one has decreased so much more than when they had, you know, the three, four-year guys like Zubak and right. uh, J.J. Redick and all those guys. Um, so, like, it's interesting as a, as a fan to see, like, how that's changed things because I'm locked into just about every Ole Miss baseball game, and it's because you know the guys that are coming back. So, while I'm pro for the players, it's interesting, like, the deal with the from a fan standpoint. But um, J.J. Redick actually has a, a podcast that's pretty good. He, he has some good guests, uh, guests on. And he said one year, I think it was his junior year, they were down like 20 at half. And Coach K looked at him and said, I hate your effing faces. <laughs> that was his line to all of them. <laughs> I hate your effing faces. Um, so I think that you're right from a social media standpoint before social media, Kay had a really good reputation. And I don't think, you know, I think there are a lot more bigger scumbags out there than him. If you hear stories about coaches, but I think that, you know, with podcasts and different mediums now, like we kind of hear more behind the scenes stuff than we have, um, you know, a decade ago. And I think part of that, you know, that's where part of the, the coach K stuff comes from, like you're saying. Oh, for sure. I mean, was it was it the Dylan Brooks thing where he like the or the kid at Oregon who was like chirping him a couple years ago after a tournament game? He very clearly got on caught saying something to him about like not doing that on camera, and then went in the press conference like I didn't say that. I was like, dude, you know these things are on TV. Like we have we have pretty high quality cameras. That and then the fact that he was acting like when the FBI thing came out, it's like you know we don't yeah. really do that here. It's like oh really? Because you gotten every one and done in their brother. Um, for their last, you know, half decade or so. But anyway, yeah. that was a cool, uh, cool, cool, awesome Final Four with that many blue bloods. Obviously, the Duke North Carolina game was an all timer. What did you think before we kind of get in some of the old Miss stuff? What did you think of the game last night? I uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised about the outcome. I was more shocked that Carolina got up that much early because that's kind of what this Kansas team had done all year. They'd kind of piddled around for like six, seven, eight minute stretches, sometimes longer than that, and then. When they got hot, they got hot. And from That's a right. talent standpoint, it wasn't one of more sells more talented teams. So when they went on those like ridiculously dominant runs, it was kind of head scratching because you couldn't necessarily like, how is this happening right now? So like outcome didn't shock me, but the way the game went surprised me a bit. Yeah, and you know, what's really interesting about it is Kansas didn't do a whole lot good at all in the first half. Specifically, they missed a lot of shots around the rim. I think um they pulled a stat up. They were like six for 21 inside the paint in the first half. But they turned that around in the second half. Um, I thought they really pushed the tempo more and got out and ran. And something that I don't think was called out enough last night um, was Kansas's like perimeter uh, ball pressure defense. Um, 
they they kind of you know when you think about ball pressure a lot of times you think about like hey pressing running jumping and trapping and all that stuff but what I thought Kansas did a good job of last night is it took North Carolina a lot longer to get into their sets than Carolina wanted to and that didn't that didn't mean that Kansas was forcing just tons of turnovers off of their ball screen defense but they were being aggressive enough to where they were taking Carolina out of a lot of their stuff. Um, you know, they were really up in passing lanes as well. Uh, Carolina probably had opportunity. When, when you've got people up in your passing lanes, you have an opportunity to back cut a lot. And I thought that Carolina didn't take advantage of that as well. And then also, I didn't think they took advantage of McCormick being in the foul trouble that he was. They tried to get it to Baycock a little bit, but they weren't running anything effective enough because – if he picked up his fourth, you know, before that first meeting or something, that game may have been over. I think it's a great point. Like what you're describing is, is like when things in the second half, particularly in the first like nine minutes or so, looked a lot harder. Like it doesn't necessarily, like you said, mean like steals and turnovers, but like everything North Carolina did offensively looked a hell of a lot harder. And that probably contributed some of, like you mentioned, taking advantage of McCormick having the foul trouble and getting the ball down low. It just seemed like they were so disoriented from like the 20 minute mark to about the nine minute mark or so that like they just weren't able to do it. Like even if they were trying it, like by the time they got the ball up the court, some of the possessions had become somewhat more difficult. It's like they didn't have a concerted game plan to be able to get it down there every time. It, did you have an opinion on the, I thought this whole, this was the perfect social media debate. It was so stupid. The whole floor gate thing where, yeah, if they, they might win that game uh, if the kid makes the – if he doesn't slip and he makes the uh, the layup on that possession. But, they, you know, you had the video of, like, the, did you see this where, like, the floor buckled a little bit? But everyone that's ever played basketball that, like, I follow on social media was like, no, that's how – like, that's how most of those floors are. Like, most of any college basketball floors, like, the floor is supposed to give a bit. Where did yep. you fall on that? No, I, they're supposed to give a little bit. And for those temporary floors, um, from both a give stamp, giving too much standpoint and also um, we, we call it a sweating floor. So a lot of times that is when you play in like a hockey arena yeah. and, it, you know, it's over the ice. Um, I, I mean, look, I wasn't there, but I didn't think that that happened at a consistent rate enough to where it like changed the game tra- uh, drastically. I've seen it do that before shit the Mississippi Coliseum has probably a little too much given it um but it's really hard and you know there's a big debate on like should it be played in these huge football stadiums or you know would the atmosphere be better at a uh, big NBA arena and at the end of the day of course the atmosphere would be better if you know the ceilings are lower and it's a lot louder and all that but money talks Yes, it does. And I don't even mind the big, like, 70,000 environment for those two games because, like, you don't ever see it anywhere else. And, like, it's a different kind of noise, and it looks kind of cool on TV. So I'm with you on that one, too. Money money certainly talks. They're not moving it to a smaller venue anytime soon. Um, but a great, uh, a great year for college basketball. And, you know, we, everyone talked about the tournament being awesome. Maybe we – I mean, look, it was a great tournament. Maybe we just kind of forgot because you didn't get one in 2020 and you didn't really have a normal one last year until kind of the later rounds. Like, um, But all in all, uh, I feel like college basketball, stock is up. That's right. That's right. You know, the, the past two or three years, there's been kind of a lot of whining and some of the uh, – about the 
talent on the floor. And then also, you know, some of the blue bloods have kind of been down in the past couple of years, um, which hasn't been typical. But I thought this year was a really good year. I think going forward as well, just what you're going to see um, with the transfer portal is people are going to have the opportunity more to play at the level they should be playing at. So there will be high majors going down and there will be low to mid majors going up. And I think that that's going to, um, you know, I think that'll add some excitement for 2022, 2023 and beyond. Speaking of uh, high majors going down, that's probably as good of a transition as any <laughs> to get into Ole Miss. <laughs> that's what we in the biz call a transition. The, uh, so Ole Miss, there's a lot has happened since we last spoke. I guess that would be, I mean, somewhere right around uh, Ole Miss's uh, pretty early exit from the SEC basketball tournament. Uh, let's start with the roster turnover. So right before we started recording, I just wanted to make sure I had everyone down. You would know better than me, so correct me just to make sure I have this right. In terms of roster turnover with guys leaving the program, you had Slatten transfer, Vander Heigen, or however you say the kid's name, out. Crowley and Luis are out. Who else did I miss? Just talking through this out loud. I, I think I think that so far that's accurate. I think that's accurate too. I'll do oh, did you, oh, Sam, Sam, did you say Sammy Hunter? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Sammy Hunter's another one. So let's start there because we'll get into the coaching aspect in a minute of it because I think this ties into it. Um, what was you know we talked about the biggest critique with this program and you know the the lack of success um last year was the fact that they maybe weren't as great in the portal as they needed to be and they elected to take three high school kids and I wrote about this a lot over the over the you know beginning part of March you know during and after Ole Miss's season was coming to an end was Kermit's up there beating the injury drum and it's not completely unfair but we talked about this before I thought the injury part of it exposed this team's flawed roster buildup and a lack of depth more so than it was actually just injuries decimating the team, right? You lost Ruffin for a little more than half the year. You lost Jarkel for a little less than half the year. And then you lost Robert Allen early in the season. That's not exactly having managers suit up for practices and just trying to get through the year. And so the root of that criticism came from taking the three high school kids, and two of them have been processed out after a year, leaving – what is that? That is leaving um, the kid from Georgia, right? Um, he played at the end of the James, year. J- yeah, James sorry. White. And the, yeah. James yeah. White, who had to play, most at, mostly at a necessity, showed some flashes, but not necessarily, I would say, a contributor, even through all the injuries that kind of Kermit was touting. What do you make of that? Like, did, I know you're not necessarily shocked that they processed the kid, but just what do you make of that being a one-in, you know, those two kids coming in one-in, one-out, like that – it's almost admitting defeat, is it not? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. And I think what you and I talked about on the injury piece that I thought was a little head-scratching is it was kind of the, the narrative was around the guys that got hurt. And, you know, that was Ruffin and Jarkel. And then Robert Allen, which was probably overblown, you know, his significance uh, from a loss. Well, my, my thing was – there wasn't really ever an overlap between Ruffin and Jarkel's injury. Like it was, it was kind of equivalent to one player being hurt season long. Um, and so fan, for fans that have frustration about 
that because Houston, you saw how far they made it this year. They had some dudes out. You know, Alabama had a really good player out. LSU had a really good player out the whole season. You know, I mean, that, that, that makes total sense. Um, but, yeah, right now, I mean, they've got, they've got four or five guys in the portal. And the interesting note kind of from the press conference a few weeks ago, and then I, I guess the press release as well, is talking about how there kind of were some mistakes maybe or alluding to mistakes on taking as many high school guys as they did. And there's four high school guys signed right now. Which is more than a year ago. And yeah, you notice, yeah, yeah. fill me in on this. Can, can you process uh, – process is not even the right word because the kid's not in the program. Can you can you cut a kid, essentially take the scholarship away? Everyone knows what I'm getting at. This late in the ball game? Well, the, the, the kids can get out of their NL, or, uh, LOI or in, NLI. Not, I can't remember what it's called. But, yeah, you can, that, that can happen this late in the year. Is that – I mean, even though that's able to happen, is that – is that something that is going to raise eyebrows around the recruiting industry? Like, you know what I mean? There's good practices to have, there's bad practices to have, and then there's just kind of the nature of the business. Where do you think that falls in that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that – I think it's situational, right? Because I do think – like a kid like um, the guy, Nick Crass, down on the coast that was committed for a while, it wouldn't shock me if there was a situation where they told him and were transparent with him, hey, look, you've got a committable offer. It's maybe a signable offer. You know, we're, we're going to continue to recruit. We're going to continue recruiting, blah, blah, blah. So I think it kind of comes down to transparency, but – you know, college basketball, I mean, it's pretty cutthroat. Um, you can burn some bridges, and that may not hurt you in the short term, but it could hurt, hurt you five or ten years down the road. That kind of stuff happens a lot. And, and you know, on the contrary to that, or not even contrary, but just adding to it, you know, this staff is not in position to think five years down the road. They don't have that. I mean, I think everyone knows what's at stake here. It's kind of similar to the baseball program in some senses. And so if that is going to happen, we sit here recording this, on April 5th, can that extend into the summer? Like in terms of the getting kids up there, how does that work? I'm so much less familiar with the college basketball timeline in terms of kids getting to campus and them getting ready for the season versus football. Like, how does that work? Like what would be the latest that could happen? I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, really the latest this could happen is the, the first summer semester, which is the first week of June. What I will say, though, is the transfer portal, the vast majority of it will be wrapped up here in about four weeks. Um, so, you know, the window, is, the, the, the window is these next three or four weeks to get things done. And, you know, the transfer portal giveth, but it also taketh as well. So, you know, that's, that's the tough part about it. Um, what's really interesting is talking to coaches, you know, the past couple weeks, um, about just college basketball in general, and then even a little bit about the SEC and Ole Miss, the, the one thing that I keep hearing them consistently say is with any program, you know, that's got a coach on the hot seat that, you know, kind of has an ultimatum uh, for the upcoming season, every single one of the, the coaches that I've talked to in the past has told me this, it's never over, right? Because of the transfer portal now, it's never over. The, my comeback on that statement, though, is 
at the end of the day, a lot of these guys that you're going to get from a low to mid-major school, they don't care a ton about winning. I know people don't like to hear that. Not all of them care a ton about winning. But it's the things like, hey, uh, NIL, being able to play at a P5 school in the SEC, being able to play on TV where their parents can watch them. Those are the things that are, are more important to them. Um, and so th- the tough part about where the staff is right now is they're going to uh, – opposing coaches are going to hit these kids pretty hard that are uh, multi-year transfers on job security. Grad transfers, it may be a little bit easier to get to. Um, but for these multi-year transfers, it's like, do you want to play for three coaches in three years? That's what these opposing coaches, it, recruiting uh, you know, philosophy is going to be to a lot of these guys against Ole Miss right now. And, you know, so far they've got, they've got one guy um, committed. They've got, you know, your four or five attrition. Um, and so you gotta, you got to bring some dudes in. Yeah, they uh, they certainly do. And right now, I mean, as the as as I'm trying to do some math here, just in real time, it, they only have like the like there's only one roster spot, right? You lost one, two, three, four, five guys. You bring in what four high school kids, and then they had a kid committed. Maybe I'm missing something. I guess it doesn't matter. But they bring in they had to get a commitment from the Jackson the kid coming from Jackson State, the center. Yeah. It just doesn't. I got. It's clearly not over with. I'm just curious to see how it shakes out. Your best guess. Do you think they end up with four high school kids on the roster? Well, so here's what makes the rest of this interesting. I have no idea about anything behind the scenes, but just knowing in today's day and age, compared to a decade or two decades ago, kids are tied to assistance by the hip almost. And at least three of those high school guys, Ronnie Hamilton brought in, and I believe James White and uh, Ty Fagan, he was the lead recruiter on as well. Do you know how many spots, uh, scholarship spots, open Matt McMahon had when he, t- when he took the LSU job? Well, I mean, now it's every single one, right? They don't have a scholarship player other than, I guess, he brings Trey Hannibal with him from Murray State, right? That's right. So 13, 13 spots minus one from Murray. I, it's my, I think he'll bring in a few guys from Murray um, from, from that roster. But, you know, with how, with how closely attached players are to these guys' hips, I don't know anything behind the scenes, but would it shock me if that's a group of five players right there? Could another spot or two open up because of guys jumping ship and following an assistant? Um, so, so pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and so that's probably the the best way to look at it, from because it, I guess the more and more I think about it, it's like actually there's actually so much more to play out here. Let's look at who's returning. It's Morell, Ruffin. So that's two. Well, actually, we don't know that. I'm I'm trying to think. I think possibility returning is the best way to do it. Morell, Ruffin, Breakfield, and Joiner, Robert Allen. They would not be processed per se. So those are the only kind of guarantees if they want to stay. And like, you know, as we sit here on April 5th, I don't know anything about the Ruffin situation, but you know, you hear things and as the days go by, you hear all kinds of different stuff. So I guess we don't really know a ton about how this will shake out. So I guess to kind of package this into an actual coherent uh, 
thought in conversation. Let's just get to the coaching side of it because you've had two assistants leave. You mentioned on the last podcast, and we talked actually pretty good length about this, about the whole Ronnie Hamilton, Win Case, um, coaching staff dynamic. Now two of his guys are gone, and that comes on the heels of him, I believe, going on the on three outlet and going on their podcast and saying he doesn't anticipate any sort of staff changes. And excuse me, that would be uh, Levi Watkins, sorry. So those two are gone. Levi and Ronnie are gone. Just from someone that was a casual basketball fan onlooker that maybe doesn't know the ins and outs of recruiting, like how would you articulate to them how significant those two losses are, particularly the Levi side of it? Because that's kind of what we hit on last time. You know, Levi, um, we, we've said this before, in my lifetime, unless I'm missing something, it's the first time Ole Miss has stolen a P5 assistant from another school in my lifetime. Um, Levi's connected from coast to coast. Uh, I'm, you know, NC State's his alma mater. It makes sense for him to go there. Um, I would assume that they're giving him, you know, a, a two-year contract. That coach is kind of on the – or that coach is on the hot seat. Um, but, look, Levi, Levi's pretty connected. He, he's a good recruiter and has a pretty good name around a circle – or, excuse me, around the college basketball um, circle. So, that, that's a pretty tough one. Um, and, you know, the other the, the thing with uh, Levi is he was the one guy that um, who also could get you transfers. He was able to get you transfers that could come in and step in day one. I think Levi's effect would have been um, even more significant if Ole Miss's uh, resources, we'll just put it that way, were a little bit better. Uh, nowadays, NIL, which Ole Miss is – Ole Miss is a Wednesday night team in the, in the SEC tournament you know, with this NIL stuff right now. Um, so they, Which you know, you've they been got on a lot of for stuff. a long time, by the way. You were one of the earliest ones to kind of start pointing that out, that this is a problem. But continue, I derailed you. Yeah, it, I, yeah, I, I believe it's a problem. And, and here's the thing. There are people right now that want a new coach today. There's people right now that want to give it a year. Ole Miss, regardless, has to has to step it up in the, from that standpoint. They have to because what's going to happen is if the job ever opens up, you're going to be so far behind other P5 and P6 schools. And the you know the administration, if you want to look at the hire, whatever they've done, you know if you think it's good or not. All right, let's scratch that. From a facility standpoint, you're at a good place, but this, the administration has done a much better job in the past half decade of getting resources from an assistant coach salary pool standpoint, recruiting budget. So you finally got those things up. You've got a really, really, really nice pavilion, uh, you know, arena in the pavilion. Your practice facility, you know, is probably middle of the pack in the SEC, but Ole Miss is, is, is behind in NIL. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt them in, in a job search because the two things that – um, these coaches look for that I think is underrated when they're going for a job is current players on the roster and NIL. And the reason current players on the roster is huge right now is because these guys don't have five years anymore to, to win. You've got three years. In college football, it's like two. We saw Chad Morris, right? So they're looking at the, the current roster and the NIL package. And 
it's my belief that um, there are a few jobs open this offseason in the SEC that um, other coaches would have taken those jobs over Ole Miss just because of the NIL situation. So that's my little NIL rant. But um, back, back to what was the second part of that? Yeah, no, you're, well, one, you're right on that. And it's, it's really indicative of how basketball is viewed and treated, I would say, at Ole Miss. And you'd say justified, unjustified, whatever. It's not really the point. But that's, it falls right in par, right? Like football is king. Um, basketball is kind of way behind. And then baseball being good, I'm not sure necessarily affects it. But, like, from an interest perspective, it probably hurts. But, like, from a sheer, like, NIL and resources it probably doesn't just because baseball is so different in that sense. But, like, them being behind in NIL, while them, you know, for all of Ole Miss's flaws, I've actually been somewhat impressed with how quickly they've gotten organized when it came to football and NIL. Look, they're never going to have the pockets of some of these other schools that are competing against. But just in terms of being organized and getting on the ball and whether it's the Grove Collective and a couple of these other ones getting out in front of this – I've been impressed with that. But, of course, that is not extended to basketball at all. And so I think you're right on that. But bringing it back to, like, the, the coaching staff side of it, so Kermit has now lost two, two of his assistants. So yeah. Levi Watkins goes to NC State. You just mentioned his alma mater. Ronnie Hamilton goes to join Matt McMahon's staff at LSU. The last time we spoke, and I thought you did a very good job of, I would say, threading the needle and fairly articulating – perhaps the imbalance in terms of the value that the collective coaching staff brought the one in the the one Kermit's had since he's been at Ole Miss it was Levi was definitely the strongest recruiter and then their other two kind of lagged behind a bit I'll uh, I'll ask you this way is there how common is that in college basketball you're very familiar with the inner workings of different staffs how common is it to have one recruiter that's um, maybe a lot further ahead than the others in terms of production and output and connections. You can, you know, I'm, I'm big on this whole assistant coaching staff thing. You know, there's been whatever it was, five or six um, spots in the SEC this year. And people would text me and say, Hey, wh what would you grade these hires as? I was like, I'm not answering that until I see their staff. Right. That's how, that's how important I think it is. So your question on the imbalance well, the imbalance is actually pretty common for teams who don't have success. Your blue bloods, your blue bloods have three really good assistants. I know he probably underperformed a little bit this year, but Chris Beard has a phenomenal staff. Bill Self has a really good staff. Um, Cal was able to bring back Orlando um, and then bring in Chin Coleman this year. Like schools, the, the imbalance is actually. It's not super uncommon, but it is very commonplace in schools that don't have success. You've got to strike at least two out of three on um, assistance to get where you want to be. And a lot of times the schools that strike two out of three, their, their head coach can recruit at a pretty uh, high level too. What was AK's makeup? I know you worked on that staff, but just in terms of like how often did he have it two out of three? And honest to God, his tenure goes back so long, I don't remember the early part of the turnover. How would you describe AK's staff from an assistant standpoint for most of his career? <laughs> well, <laughs> what make what, the tough part about this is I'm, I'm hand raised a huge Bill Armstrong guy. Sure. And obviously, the but past couple of weeks. 
if, yeah, the past couple of weeks, you know, some stuff has gone down there as well. Um, I would say um, he would kind of hovered in the one to two range during okay. his time. He had some good ones. I mean, look, Mike White was a good one. Um, Tory Ward could recruit at a really high level. Um, Bill obviously did really good things. Moody, Brian, TD, et cetera. So, um, but, but I do think that from a decision-making standpoint, if you said, hey, what things could AK have done differently? And my, my number one thing for him would have been, um, you know, his assistants, his assistant staff. Now, where it gets tough to criticize him on that is he had the lowest P6 staff assistant salary pool for like five years. And so how, how, do, you, how do you go steal a Levi Watkins from Arizona State when your staff pool is less than what his is, his, his is now at UAB? That, that's the tough balance there. Um, that, but, I, I, yeah, I will say, I mean, that was the – that would have been the biggest criticism I had with him is what did you ever have three guys together that could all go get it done? And just to add on to your point without putting words in your mouth, that's you, you said it earlier. That's not the case anymore. Ole Miss does not have the lowest P six salary pool. Correct. It's probably middle of the pack in the sec. I mean, it's, it's close to a million dollars. And so I'll just say there's really no excuse for that to be the case now. And you mentioned the two out of three and kind of hovering around one and two. That's kind of in line with how AK had success. He had some years. Look, I, there are probably still some people out there that think he shouldn't. He didn't have the success that maybe he should have. I did vehemently disagree with that. I mean, you don't last 14 or 13, however many long years he ended up lasting at Ole Miss. Given the resources, I mean, think about it. AK coached most of his career in the tad pad, you know, without having success. And I think he overcame a lot of obstacles. And now that like a lot of those excuses have faded. We just kind of mentioned the NIL part of it, not being up to par, but the system yeah. pool, not a longer an excuse. The building's no longer an excuse. And so I guess for spinning this forward, do you have any sort of idea where Kermit goes from here? And I mean, look, I Kermit's a smart guy. You th- like how, how acutely aware do you think he knows that he kind of has to nail it in terms of like recruiter, evaluator, like Levi-type level, he has to nail it with these two hires? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's got to, and it's got to be a very transactional mindset at this moment. It's got to be whoever I go get could get me a dude, or dudes, plural. Um, because, look, the, seat, the seat's hot, right? And – the, what, what's going to be really interesting about this is Levi just got a two-year contract at NC State, um, which, may, which probably made him comfortable making that jump because it's one hot seat to the other. It, would, is Keith going to give somebody a two-year contract at this point from an assistant standpoint at three hundred grand or whatever the case may be? I just don't know that I see it. Maybe he does. Now, the other, the flip side to it, and it's just like my thoughts on NIL, I get it. If, you, if you've got money and you want to put it into a sport right now, you know, football makes a lot of sense. Why would you put it in basketball that is struggling? But people have to look at NIL as a long-term game. It's, it's, it's like putting money into a mutual fund. Long-term, it's going to play out. There's going to be ups and downs to it. Um, so my, my point on the two-year contract is I would feel comfortable if I was Keith giving somebody two years, if it gave me like a real high major 
SEC dude or two that um, was like a multi-year transfer. Like a guy that's not going to – he can't leave really because of his situation or he'd have to sit out in another place. So I think there were like very little – like there's small situations where I would do it. But in general, I cannot see just giving anybody a two-year contract at this point, um, you know, because of, because of how hot the seat is. Um, and so – for Kermit, he's he's got to go get he's got to go get somebody that can get him a dude or dudes. Um, and you know he's got two spots open. Ronnie leaving to I mean look I'll be honest Ronnie leaving LSU that was a, I was shocked by that. Um, not him leaving him getting offered that. Um, and I think the, the only the way that I see that maybe it makes sense is if he's going to be there for a couple of years and McMahon's trying to kind of Matt Luke the thing a little bit and try to clean it up. I think it's a and, great analogy. Yeah. And then, Hey, after two or three years, we'll get, get the NIL thing going. Cause they could have a two year postseason ban for all we know. And then maybe they upgrade their assistance a little bit, but I mean, look, Ronnie didn't have the connections to recruit coast to coast for Ole Miss. Um, he, he had some nice connections in the state of Georgia um, that got, got us some players, but, you know, that was a loss that I thought if he was going to leave, it would be for like a AAC school or below. Fair enough. I think you're, I think you're right in that sense. Well, what was the, I, I cracked up at the, the one of the stipulations in McMahon's contract where it's like, it's a seven year deal, but it becomes eight. I can't remember if it's if they get a multi-year postseason ban or if they get a postseason ban, it's like, Hey man, congrats on your eight year contract. Like that's, that's probably pretty safe that that's happening. But I think you're probably right in that sense. The first part of that though, you brought up about it being very transactional. And this honestly ties back to you talking about how, you know, you're never necessarily out of it. You know, because you can get one or two dudes, and then all of a sudden your whole outlook changes. Do you think Kermit views it in that sense to where it's like, look, I don't have to hire somebody that's going to be with me for four or five years. I need a guy that's going to come in and going to get me. It's almost like like the assistant coach hire he's making, and this is probably too literal of a way to put it, but like recruiting extended. Can I hire a guy that's going to be tied to some guy? What did you say about 20 minutes ago? you know, assistants are tied to the hip with the kids they recruit and vice versa now. Like, do you think he views it almost as recruiting extended to where it's like, can I hire a guy that's going to get me a dude and keep me here for another year or two? Like, do you think that's probably his mindset at all? Say that, say that, say that again on the, about his mindset. Sure. Just in terms of hiring these two assistants, I thought you brought up an inter, like an interesting point on a couple fronts. Earlier you were talking about how assistants are tied to recruits. And really, guys, yeah. that they're at the program at the hip. It's very, very yeah. close relationship. You also mentioned that this look like the way he has to hire assistants has to be very transactional. It almost feels like recruiting extended in a sense from the assistant coaching hires. Like, how acutely aware do you think he is of like, hey, the best route to go is probably can I just hire someone that's going to bring two dudes with them because they're attached at the hip versus a guy that, you know, thinking, oh, I can work with this guy three, four years down the road, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, I mean, I'll be honest. I'd be shocked if that's not what happens for at least one of the spots. I'd, I'd be shocked if, if, one of the, if it one and maybe both of the spots were not people that have guys already. Because, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's tournament or bust, right? So, like, getting a guy that's going to go get a high school guy in 2023 or 2024, I mean, that's, that's kind of irrelevant at this point. 
I, I would be shocked if if who he brings in it, it, I would be shocked if both of the people that he brings in do not have a player uh, you know attached to them. We were talking a little bit uh, off air right before we recorded about kind of the challenges of this situation, and I think it faces multiple fronts because we've just through run through all of this stuff, and that doesn't really include keeping the kids on the roster, right? I think I feel pretty good about their chances to keep Deshaun Ruffin, but man, if you don't keep yeah. Matt Morell, um, like what do we like? It becomes an even harder challenge and even a more different conversation than we're having now. And so, you know, you were talking about how difficult it is. Like that's the other part of this, right? And that's kind of the transfer portal and the trans or the transfer portal give it, the transfer portal take it. He's got all of this going on, and then he's got to figure out a way to keep. You know, I don't know how how he views Joiner as an asset and like how much he covets it, but that's a guy that can score in the SEC. And then Matthew Morell is the main one. He's having to do all this and balance keeping two guys on the roster, which I can't imagine is easy. With with only one assistant to help him doing it. Ooh, I think about it from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean it, it, it's a tough deal, right? And um, look, I mean stuff always is happening behind the scenes. So you know, a, a player of a Morell's caliber has probably gotten hit up not only this week, but probably for weeks, maybe even months now, right? And so who knows on, you know, hitting him and who knows on Joiner. Um, I'm with you. I don't, I don't see a, a scenario where Ruffin leaves, but it's a really tough deal going into next year. And I've been, you know, I've tried to be pretty transparent about evals on kids that come in um, that we recruit, whether it's high, high school kids or transfers. And this JBS McKinnis guy from Jackson State, look, he could probably play up a level. Um, he probably could play Conference USA, Sun Belt, you know, that kind of deal, or maybe even AAC. But I, he, he's not a high major player in my eyes. There are some things that he does defensively um, that could translate well, you know, in, in the SEC. But uh, he's not a high major guy um, for your for your back to the basket five, replacing Anas Brooks and. Um, that that's the tough piece. He also shoots like in the fifty percent from free the free throw line. So they need guy. They need some. They need some dudes who can score at three levels. Um, they need some back to the basket bigs. Maybe maybe just one. Um, but their their take so far with him, I, I just don't think that he's an SEC player. That's been the problem, though, hasn't it? I mean, whether it's high school kids or elsewhere, it's kind of like, what exactly are they seeing in this? And so without putting you in a bad spot, and I hate to do the whole Taylor Twelman, but, like, what are they doing? Like, I was going to ask you about him next. Like, did, I, did you just answered my question for me. It doesn't sound like you see it. So, like, what is – if there is a plan, like, what part of – if you're just taking your best guess, how, how does he fit in as part of a plan? Or is that just a guy just to get a guy? I mean, I think there's just going to be a, a lot of – you know, that staff, it's going to be a lot of um, – it's going to be a lot of best available in their minds rather than fit so far because of the situation that they're in. Um, being on the hot seat – and, I mean, think about this, right? Like, this week, you're on the hot seat and you have, uh, you have 66% less recruiters than every other – you know, the vast majority of team in the country during peak portal season. Um, so I think for him, for Kermit, what's really important is you got to go get two assistants quick that can get stuff done because you're, you're behind and you, 
outside of, you know, these just tweets where these kids get blown up by all 351 schools in the country or whatever that are reaching out for interest. Like I haven't heard uh, a ton of names. That's like shortlist people um, for this program outside of uh, McKinnis from Jackson state. And then I think there's like an NAIA kid from maybe Loyola, New Orleans or something like that. Um, Oh, that would get more well. fired up. You take an NIA kid? <laughs> yeah, NAIA kid. Uh, he, he was the player of the year. I'll give him that. But he also shot 15% from the three-point line last year. So, that would – you know, I don't think that's getting your shooter in that you need. So, I was about to say, they had two um, three-point shooting. That might balance things out last year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's an – it's an up, but that's a probably a kind of a way to put a bow on like that part of the conversation. And before we get out of here, you just, I thought you outlined that great. It's a tough uphill battle and it's one that's going to have to be fought in a handful of weeks and not months. Would you agree with that statement? Like he's going to have to kind of win all of these different battles to, I guess, win the roster building war on paper in a matter of weeks, not months. Right. I mean, this is all going to like, come together for better or for worse in a fairly truncated time period. And he's got to hire two assistant coaches while doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's right. This, the, the, the vast majority of this roster will be, will be done in four or five weeks. Um, so you got to go get it done, but I would assume for him right now, well, priority number one is keeping Matthew Morrell. Um, priority number two is you got to go get some assistance that, that can bring some guys in and, you got to get creative with that. But the other piece of it, too, is if it's somebody that's a real impact dude, there are six SEC jobs that just got filled. And I think most of them have at least a spot or two open outside of state. I think that's right. Um, well, what's, what's going to be – why would somebody who's connected to a player not go to one of their, those schools where you can get a multi-year contract, more job security, et cetera, if you have, like, a real dude, like, all-conference caliber players so um it'll, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like going forward roster building wise absolutely a couple honestly just random questions i was interesting because i want to get your thoughts here uh at the very end about just a couple of the other staffs and a couple of the other hires before we get out of here but i've always yep. just been curious what is the process like so when the season ends and guys are trying to figure out you know if they're going to be there next year or if they're getting processed or not how acutely aware are the players of where they stand in terms of where they'll be next year? I won't use an example off of uh, this past year's team. I'll try to think of one a couple of years ago. I mean, like Blake Henson a couple of years ago probably had to know that his time in Oxford was over with the way they had to build the roster. What is these couple weeks like in terms of how the dialogue goes between a coaching staff and a player and how aware are the players of where they stand? Well. Um, I think that most of them are, are fairly aware and, you know, most of them are getting hit up by low and mid majors if they're kind of a bench guy. So it's, it's in their, it's in their head as well, but a, a, a back three or four, a guy in the rotation. So you're 10 through 13, they're normally pretty aware of what's going on. Um, and assistants will have transparent conversations with them and, you know, lead recruiters for these guys, like you, I don't look at the transfers, but from the high school kids, a lot of those guys you've had relationships with for three or four years. So not only, you know, are you trying to be, Hey, we want you to stay engaged, but you be transparent with them. But also a lot of times these assistants are helping them get to the next place. Sure. 
you know, they're, they're like, Hey, this, you know, you're going to go down a league, but here's the best fit for you. So I, you know, those, those kinds of conversations are, are pretty transparent. And In terms of just generally, and I looked, I know things change based off of like, Hey, maybe we're in the mix for this guy. So we have to like process one more kid. But in general, how quickly are the decisions made from a coaching staff perspective? Is that like a couple of days things that take a week? Like generally, like just in a random AK year, in terms of having a plan of kids you got to process or whatever, like how, how quick does that come together? This one, I would think, you're, you're talking about adding assistance on, correct? Yeah. Yeah, this one, I think, I mean, is going to happen really quickly. Um, It all kind of depends on the time of year and job security. I think it took us weeks before we brought Tony Madlock in in 2014. I mean, it took a a really long time. Um, And sometimes people keep spots open for a month or two or two, you know, three months because there's different dominoes that they think are going to fall, et cetera. Um, but for head coaching hires, most of that gets done in a week or two because a lot of that's kind of discussed uh, beforehand. Like Matt McMahon's probably been talking to people for years about what his staff would look like if he got a P5 job. Um, and then you have guys like Jans who brought a dude or two over with him from New Mexico State. Like that was known. Cohen probably knew that was happening when he brought him on, et cetera. So I think it, it, to answer your question, it's kind of situational. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's a mess, man. It's, it's, it, it I don't say mess. It's a challenge. <laughs> mess might be a little too strong, but uh, some people may agree. I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. Um, before, and certainly we'll have you back on to, uh, to kind of dissect it as the picture becomes a little bit more clear, whether that's a pretty one or not. A couple of things that right before I let you get out of here, what do you think of some of the hires around the league? Um, I would say that maybe the most shocking one to me was the fact that the, uh, that McMahon took the LSU gig. What do you think drew him there? I just felt like that's a guy that could have had a fairly healthy high major situation, maybe mm-hmm. this year, maybe if not in a year or so, and decide to kind of take on a, uh, a, uh, a honestly, a pretty long-term uh, process there with LSU's NCAA troubles. Uh, did Scott Rubler just like sell these guys drugs? What, what was the deal there? <laughs> Well, I was a little surprised about it, too. Um, I thought that McMahon here, – here's, here's what I thought McMahon was going to do. I thought McMahon was going to take um, one of these kind of Missouri, South Carolina state jobs and try to – look, all coaches have a lot of confidence in themselves. So try to bounce it into like a really good job or blue blood, whatever the case may be, down the road. Um, so I thought he was going to look for a quick fix, three or four year SEC job, and bounce it. The thing about LSU is, you know, LSU's a top half of the league job. Um, yes, there are NCAA sanctions, but for McMahon, he can go in there. I know culture is a very cliche word, but he can go kind of build literally zero to thirteen from the ground up, establish a culture, and he's going to have more job security than anybody in the country. And LSU's the type type of job. I'd love to research this to see, like, has anybody left LSU for a, a bigger job? Like, D- Dale Brown got there, and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm staying here. You know, like, they did sure. everything he needed to stay there. You know, now if a Kansas or somebody like that comes knocking. But I think LSU's a good enough job to where you, you can stay there for a while, and they're, they're going to take care of him. And I think that for him to make that move, there had to be some um, – 
you know, pretty transparent things in his contract and what expectations were. Also, LSU, I think is, um, I think they'll play NIL pretty strong going forward as well. So once they kind of clean things up, um, they'll be able to, they'll be able to go get dudes how they've gotten. Because that's the funny part about Will Wade. Like people have always gotten dudes at LSU. They've yeah, always they've... had those resources. He's just an asshole. <laughs> Yeah, that is certainly true. It's a good point. And like, you know, you mentioned in a day and age where these guys don't have time, maybe he looked at it from the perspective of like, okay, this might not be great in the beginning, but I'm guaranteed to have time. I mean, hell, they basically gave him an eight year contract. Like that's kind of unheard of in this modern day and age, particularly when it's a new hire. So that's kind of fascinating in that sense. What do you make of the golden fit at Florida? He filled out his staff pretty quick. Yeah, he filled out his staff pretty quick. Um, he is a hell of a coach, very analytically focused. He looks like he's about you and I's age, um, maybe about half a foot taller, though, at least. Um, and, and, you know, for him, I was expecting him to bring on a stronger staff than he did. Um, that, that's my only criticism so far. He brought in, like, the number two guy from state, uh, Corey, Corey McRae, excuse me, Corey McRae, who's a big Atlanta recruiter. You know, he, he's got a lot of connections there. But he brought in the number two guy at State to be either his lead assistant or his number two at Florida. That was a little surprising to me. Um, and then I think he brought some money maybe from Richmond and um, then maybe brought a guy with him from San Francisco. So on paper, I do wonder – if the staff he has has the connections to be able to recruit at the level that Florida wants them to recruit at. Mississippi State, Chris Jans, I thought that was a pretty good hire. What did you think? You know, honestly, it may have been, it may have been best hire and best fit in the SEC. Um, now, Jans is, Jans is tough. He's, he's a tough-nosed coach, um, but he has not – he's coached at six different places in his coaching career. He has never won less than 21 games. Pretty good There's track record there. That. There's something to that. And so um, he brought his guys over from New Mexico State um, and then kept on George Brooks. George Brooks is the best recruiter in the state of Mississippi. So he's got a, you know, he's got a decent staff there. But Jans can coach. Um, so if they can, if they can get players there, I, I think that he can probably get it done. I had to look up the dude that Carolina hired. What do you make of um, Lamont Paris? Yeah, Lamont Paris, you know, he had a good run this year. He's been at Chattanooga. Um, pretty respected um, in college basketball circles. He spent a lot of his time as a recruiter in the Midwest. Um, for, for Lamont, I think it's, it's, it's going to be all about staff, too. But there are a lot of people that think that um, – South Carolina may have downgraded from Frank to Lamont, so that'll be interesting to see going forward. And Frank got a job pretty quickly. That's UMass deal is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting fit. Uh, if you're talking about hard nose stuff, that guy seems like he could fit in in the Northeast. Honestly, he feels like he could fit in anywhere, but like his personality and the way he stares a hole through you um, half the time when he looks at you that that was an interesting, uh, interesting hire to me. Dennis Gates at Mizzou thoughts? Yeah, so Dennis was one that. Um, I was shocked like a month or two ago that his name was not popping up like in searches and then like articles for hot boards and stuff like that because he he's an up-and-comer. 
I just think that that may be too big of a jump for him. Um, Missouri's probably not the job that it was a decade ago, but you still you got Kansas City and St. Louis right there, and Columbia is not a small town uh, anyway. They've got a nice arena, and people really care about basketball there. I think for Dennis, that jump may have been a little too big, just looking at it super early. I think did we hit the Mike White Georgia thing? What was that? That happened right after the last time we recorded. What do you make of that, though? If just uh, in case we did not. Yeah, so that um, I mean, man, they moved quick on that, and they were quiet with it too. I think that for for Whitey, Athens will be a really good fit for his family. Um, and one thing, you know, uh, Whitey did not get what he needed to have done at Florida. Um, I don't think he was terrible there but he obviously wasn't up to that standard and it's a really tough one because it's like Florida pre-Billy like what is Florida basketball pre-Billy uh Donovan Lon Kruger had like a good year some good years there but um it's a hard situation to read what I do think Whitey will do is I don't think they're going to be a top 25 team ever but a he raised their floor um and b He's been known to make some really good assistant coaching hires. He had to backfill two of his spots this year because both of his dudes um, got D1 jobs, and then FAU's coach actually worked for him um, before getting the FAU job. So he brought two of his guys over from Florida. I'm not sure what Pinkins is, is doing. Um, I'm, uh, he may have an offer there to Georgia, but looking around. So I think he's got one spot to fill, but – Whitey can uh, fill a staff pretty well. So that's one thing that I think will definitely be an advantage. Georgia will have one of the better staffs they've, they, they've really ever had. Yeah, that feels like a hire to where he could actually do okay there because the expectation is lower, and that's a guy that probably lowers your floor. Is that, pro- is that fair? Uh, you mean raises your floor? Yeah, sorry, raises your floor. Yeah, lowering yeah. your floor is probably not where you want to go. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> raising your floor, that seems like a decent fit for him. And, honestly, you know, he wasn't the most popular guy in Florida in terms of approval rating by the end of that. Um, so, I imagine just getting a reset probably helps him a little yeah. bit as well. 100%. 3.4 million is not too shabby either. Yeah, that doesn't help either. What's a, I have no idea why this came up. It may have mentioned uh, just something you said earlier. What is uh, Sergio Rucco doing these days? Do you have any idea? He was um, – Bucky hired him at Samford as an assistant, and I, be, I believe he's on support staff now at Samford. Okay. That I, that was a complete non-sequitur. Um, something you mentioned earlier made me think, wonder where that guy was. That was back when AK got – was uh, recruiting all the foreign kids. And I did that story when I was at uh, the DM about them recruiting kids all over the world. And he was like, we used to have a lot of kids from Memphis and now we just have Polish kids and Latvians. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this information, pal, but that was a great quote. (laughs) Um, Sergio Ruco is a great interview for that story. He's a character. He's a character. He is Bracken Ray. Um, former Aiden Kenny Stafford, repeat rights basketball correspondent. I uh, I appreciate the time as always, dude. It was great to catch up. And uh, as we outlined, this uh, this whole storyline and saga is far from over. And we'll uh, we'll holler at you again in a few weeks when the picture gets a little clearer. Sounds like a plan. All right, that was Bracken Ray. Appreciate him uh, stopping by there to recap the basketball season and to provide some uh, kind of interesting perspective on uh, what Kermit Davis is going to have to. Uh, 
to overcome some of the daunting stuff that the uh, program faces. It's going to be a fascinating story to watch play out over the next month. We'll probably have Bracken back on. That's going to do it for our show today. Colin and I will do a uh, some sort of uh, Alabama series preview, and I guess we'll talk about the game that happened in Trustmark Park. Um, the other on Tuesday night, even though that was not able, you're not able to watch it. I caught some of the radio broadcast uh, in between recording with Bracken. But anyway, we'll have an Alabama series preview, probably package that there with uh, Mailback Friday. But I uh, appreciate you making it to the end, making this podcast a part of your day. And we will, uh, we'll catch you again on Friday. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.